Hey everyone, welcome back to Until You Make It, episode 11 coming at you, and it's a good one, boy. We have special guest, professional video editor, Evan Schiff. I shouldn't even say video editor, film editor is more like it. Um, Evan Schiff, going to be talking about all kinds of things relating to the industry and uh, some other stuff too, so it should be pretty fun. This episode was live streamed on Helium Turtle Studios, so if you want to go check it out and see our faces feel free to check out our YouTube channel. But otherwise, thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone, um, and welcome to episode 11. Today, we have joining me, Mr. Michael Yavish, as always, Mr. Ryan Lau, as well as special guest Evan Schiff who uh, just happens to be most well-known for his work as an editor on John Wick 2 and John Wick 3. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yes. <laughs> First <laughs> off the bat. So congrats to you on that. Uh, both excellent, excellent films. But we'll get into that, all that stuff a little bit later. First of all, just uh, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I guess to start off, we were, we were kind of talking before we even went live about how you know, everyone at Helium Turtle, you know, our side of things, we all kind of are, you know, small time filmmakers. We do a little bit of everything. We do the editing, we do the audio, we do the choreography. Where did you kind of start off in this whole space of creative video stuff? Well, when I was in high school, between my junior and senior year of high school, I started off um, interning at Stan Winston Studio. And so they're, you know, they're an animatronic studio out here. They did you know, they created the animatronics for like Terminator and Predator and Aliens. And um, when I was out there, they were working on Galaxy Quest and uh, End of Days. So those were my first two credits in the industry, you know, and that was mostly just like going on set and doing whatever people needed me to do. Um, Coffee boy. Uh, more than that, I, you know, it, it, was, <laughs> I wasn't, know, just it wasn't quite that there was there were there was joking because, you know, in the in the like the animatronics, you know, world, things have to glisten a lot. So there was some of the mechanics were like, let's send him out to find the biggest bottle of KY that he can find because you know, they, <laughs> they smear that uh, on the like silicone, you know, no way. So That's that they, something so that they glisten. But no, I did like on so on Galaxy Quest. I was on set for like a week or two. I had the like control on one of the airbags inside the Thermians, and so I'd basically push a button, and they would make them look like they were breathing, and it would sort of you know inflate an airbag inside that would make the skin, you know, expand a little bit. Um, and then uh, I, I gotta say, just quickly, when Mike and I were preparing a little bit, so we we looked into your IMDb. We both saw Galaxy Quest. Me personally, that's a movie I think nobody's really gives enough credit to for being as good as it is and uh there's a there's a whole documentary on it now on i think on hulu uh, oh no kidding yeah it's great and talks entirely about that about how it's this like very you know when you talk to people who have seen it it's like potentially the best star trek movie you know that's been made <laughs> you know but when it yeah when it came out it wasn't as big as you would have hoped but it has definitely a strong you know cult following yeah, it's interesting. So anyway, th I just found that so funny. Um, yeah. Let's uh, continue. <laughs> so yeah, so that, that was fun. And then uh, I don't remember what I did on the end of days set. That was just like a few days. Um, they were shooting the end of the movie after the train crashes. But uh, cool. yeah, so so I, I, you know, I got started there. I didn't like I grew up in upstate New York. 
didn't realize for even though I have family in the industry out here and my parents are originally from out here, I didn't really realize that like working in movies was the thing that you could do. Um, I started, you know, pestering my family and that's how I got the setup at Stan Winston. I applied to USC for film school and, you know, ended up going there for four years. And then while I was there, I figured out I wanted to edit more so than do um, animatronics and creature effects. Did you always have a love for film when you were younger? Yeah, like, you know, I was there's not a lot to do in Syracuse. So like I was definitely I spent a lot of time going to the movies by myself, you know, and I kept like trying to get from my friends to be like, hey, let's go see a movie this afternoon. And they'd be like, we just saw one yesterday and be like, yeah, I know. Let's go see another one. <laughs> and uh, they weren't that into that. So and they're like, I didn't know anybody that was like making movies in Syracuse. You know, like I, a lot of my film school friends are like, oh, yeah, we like shot all these movies when we were kids and got the whole like, you know, neighborhood together and a camera. And a, I didn't really know anybody doing that. So like most my friends and I did a lot of you know, I did like uh, was on the stage crew in high school and, you know, I ran the like sound mixer for our musicals and things like that. But I didn't know anybody making videos. The working at stands allowed me to get into editing, you know, in a professional sense while also still finishing college. And um, so, yes, yeah, so that's what I did. So by the time I graduated from SC, I was, you know, on my way into editorial. So by the time you had, you know, kind of discovered that, oh, I want to be on the, you know, more of the editorial side of things, did all that stuff you did at that studio, uh, like making connections there, help you break into that space more? Or was it like, um, a separate thing? It's kind of a separate thing. I mean, the biggest thing is that it got me visual effects editing experience and it got me into the union. Those are those are big hurdles. Um so I definitely, when I was applying for jobs that I was probably actually not that qualified for, having the credits as like a visual effects editor for Stan Winston Studio, that helped a lot. Um, and what exactly, so you're saying via visual effects editing, what does that entail? Because I, I kind of know, but I, I'm not really sure the specifics of it. You know, on the, on a, so if you're talking about on like the production side, so on like where the editorial department actually is, if you're on a, you know, a big Marvel movie and you've got 2000 VFX shots in your movie, it's somebody's job, in this case, the video effects editor's job to track all of those shots, to do temp composites that you stick in the edit to work with before you have a shot back from an actual vendor like Industrial Light and Magic or someplace like that. So it's a it's a you know, it's a part creative and part organizational job. You know, you'll see like most VFX editors come armed with their own FileMaker database that they've been tailoring for, you know, decades. And so, you know, yeah, it's like it's part tracking and part compositing. Uh, I have a question uh, is sure a little bit more about the uh, you know what is the the workflow there do you you lay out like you know all your dailies and get an approved lot cut then send it out and then you replace things in certain times there's like scenes where you might have invisible cuts and and the VFX hides that up what's the process like when you edit for VFX um, so usually as I'm going through if I need like a um, yeah if I need like a morph or I need a split screen I'll do that all that myself and then, you know, we don't really act on anything until after you finish shooting and you've had a chance to like watch it through and see, you know, which decisions you made about shots that you need hold up and which ones don't. It's a way to prove that you need the work that you thought you needed. And, you know, once you've proved like, yes, this is what I need, then it becomes a little bit of like looking at the schedule because nobody wants to pay for a shot that, that you're going to cut out. So you sort of yeah. want to like, if it's something simple, like a split screen, that'll happen at the very last minute. Like, you know, we'll turn those over, you know, a month or so before 
we have, you know, before we actually need them. And somebody will just bang it out in their garage and send it back. For the bigger things like, you know, 3D effects, there's, you know, huge set extensions or things that require like, you know, lots of, you know, digital assets that need to be created, you know, then you sort of have to commit to that early and hope that, you know, in four months or whatever, you haven't made a bad decision that costs a lot of money to fix. When you were at USC, what would you say, like, what made you gravitate towards editing over like all the other aspects of filmmaking that you were probably working on in school? Yeah, I mean, so like SC has a production track. It's basically centered around three production classes. And the first class, they just give you a bunch of like, you know, just a cheap video camera and say, like, come back with a movie every three weeks. Basically, like, just go out and just get experience and start shooting stuff. But so then in that case, you're you know, you're writing, you're, you're shooting, you're doing your own sound, you're doing your own editing and whatever else you want to do. And in that class, I realized that I didn't like most of the other jobs, but I did like spending my weekends in the edit lab, you know, cutting my, my terrible movies together. And, and then I would take them into class and people would be like, well, the story sucks. The cinematography is not great, but the editing is actually surprisingly good. <laughs> and uh, that was, you know, that I sort of took that as like, yeah, you know, that's the part I like too. Maybe I should go pursue that. Uh, and then I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to focus on editing and, uh, yeah. Everything else sucks, but the editing is great. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not terrible at cinematography. I, I'm, I'm not a good writer. Uh, and I didn't enjoy, I didn't enjoy writing. And, you know, the people that had grown up making movies in their childhood definitely had a leg up over those of us who were like, I'd like to get into movies, but I don't really know what that involves, you know, and then they're like, write something. You're like, I've never, I've never written anything like this, you know, in my life. And so the writing was terrible. The stories were terrible. But the point of that class is actually not to make good movies. The point of that class is to make bad movies and bring them into your class and have your peers tear you to pieces. And that builds up your wall. Um, So it was really valuable for that, because by the time you graduate from that class, they're like, I can take criticism and just let it roll off my back and it's fine. Right. Yeah. When you frame it like that, it becomes such an important, it's an important tool rather than just an experience, you know, to be able to move forward with that. We're all nodding our heads along, as as you say, terrible writing, because we've, (laughs) at least Ryan and I say time and time again, we can't write for for shit you know we can't, <laughs> we'd leave try and leave that to the other people and then we come in with the big ideas and and try and put our spin on it so that's so funny to hear from someone like you that was the biggest that was the biggest struggle of writing short films in college was was that part so definitely feel that very deeply <laughs> yeah <clears throat> you know now like later in my career um i guess not that later in my career you know i'm getting into a little bit of writing but i still don't really enjoy it all that much Do you enjoy being on set when you have the opportunity? I do enjoy to? being on set. I, I like being on set for like a couple hours, you know, when they're shooting someplace fun. I don't like being on set all day if I don't have anything to do because then you just end up in everybody's way. I, like I just wrapped up. I was on working on Bullet Train and we just finished shooting last week, actually. So that because of COVID restrictions, I couldn't go on set most of the time. But I made sure to there, there was one really cool set. I was like, I'm going to go on set. And thankfully it was outside. So that made it easier. Do they ever bring you on the set for like a creative reason or some kind of like does the director, does it benefit you at all? Or like, do you, did they bring you in to benefit how they're shooting things? Like I've never been on a call sheet like you, you know, except for when I'm cutting on set for a reshoot, you know, like on John Wick 2, we had a week of reshoots in Montreal. And so I just brought my laptop and a hard drive 
you know, in a monitor or whatever on set and I would go wherever they went and set up, you know, next to Video Village, you know, then in that case, like I would get downloads from the DIT, you know, every couple of hours and start cutting things together to make sure that, you know, we were getting the things that we were there to reshoot because we weren't going to have another chance to do it again. Yeah, we've, we've actually seen that before editing on set. And we've seen it with Baby Driver and we've also seen it with um, the Raid 2 did it just for either it's instant gratification of what you're trying to do just to make sure things work. I mean, Baby Driver's case was like the, the thinking of the music. Yeah, actually, I cut all the animatics on Baby Driver. Oh, um, cool. And then... Wait, no uh, way. I didn't see that. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I, um, so Paul, the editor who cut the actual movie, started with Edgar in the UK on Baby Driver, you know, years and years ago. And he cut together, I think uh, they did like a table read with some actors. And so he cut that together. And then Edgar has a house here in L.A., and he was, you know, doing more development work. So he needed somebody local and I got set up with him. So he would come over to my apartment and we w- worked on like the pitch <laughs> reel. And we, so we spent like a few months doing a pitch reel that was about 15 minutes and it had like 120 different movies in it. I ripped all these Blu-rays, um, <laughs> downloaded some YouTube clips, you know, we, 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 it was, went all out. I wish I could show it because it's, you know, you can't show these things because they're made of all these other movies, but they're like, it was yeah, actually yeah. like. Um, I've done a few of these ripomatics, and this was the one I, you know, I'm the, the most now what, proud of. Yeah, can you go into that I, the idea of that a little bit more for for some other people who have no idea what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, so so basically, when you're pitching a movie, you obviously you don't have the movie to like, you don't have visuals from the movie. That's the whole point is you want to get somebody to go give you some money to make a movie. So as part of the pitch process, a lot of directors cut together what we call a, what I call, you know, a ripomatic. Um, there's a couple of different terms for it, but you know, ripomatic is the one that that one's the most, most fun. With. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you're basically cutting a trailer for a movie that doesn't exist yet using other movies as your sources. So, uh, I did one ripomatic for a friend that was like, you know, it was like a detective story, you know, set in the like Pacific Northwest, so we used like some of the gray and a little bit of like uh, insomnia and a little bit of like Silence of the Lambs. And you find pieces of dialogue and shots that have the tone and the vibe and the if you get lucky, the content that you need. And then you cut those together like a trailer. And then you bring that when you go into a pitch meeting, you've got your lookbook, which is, you know, just like art and concept drawings and things like that and discussions about story and character. And then you've got this like little sizzle reel trailer piece that you can show to get people excited. Right. This is like pre, pre, pre production, you know, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. this is it's this, just the ideas, you know, it's almost like mood boarding. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In um, you know, in baby driver's case, we called it a mood reel. We went through every, you know, sort of change in tone and emotion throughout the film in each of the sequences using the tracks that Edgar had written into the script. So we spent a while doing that. That was by far the most involved ripomatic I've ever worked on. Yeah, well, when you think about it, that that is a hard idea to convey. I mean, pe- people said this, too, about the trailer that they did wind up releasing for Baby Driver. Um, a lot of people were saying it didn't even really capture the essence of the movie because they ditched the whole music idea. Like it, that didn't really come through enough in the trailer of how much of a prominent aspect that was going to be. It's an action musical. <laughs> right. Right. Which I think, you know, some people were saying was one of the reasons why they decided then to release that whole first scene to like mm. YouTube for free is because, you know, we really need to, this is why you need to watch the movie. And people saw that and were like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's that's fantastic. 
it, you know, it's a it's a unique film and a unique concept. And, you know, obviously Edgar's amazing. Um, and so then, you know, when they when they did get the green light, then he had like three or four different storyboard artists working all at the same time on different sequences, including dialogue scenes, which is not normally like a thing that you would storyboard. He would shuttle those my way. And, you know, I would start essentially trying to time out how all these scenes might play in real time to these songs, because all the other departments in the movie had to get an idea of not only what the tone of the scene would be, but like how to fill that time, particularly for like the cinematographer. You know, it's like you've normally with the storyboards, you're cutting things together and you sort of make it work for the storyboard and understand what the action is. But you're not actually trying to hit like a time. And, you know, with Baby Driver, you're obviously like we're not cutting the song. So you know, if there's a dialogue scene and I've got eight storyboards for a two minute song, like I'm, <laughs> I'm hanging a long time. On yeah. the storyboard. <laughs> and um, there's a couple instances, you know, where in the movie they restart the song. And that was because they actually ran out of song uh, for the action. And so they're like, you know, they sort of made that up on the fly. Like, oh, shoot, this sequence is going to run longer, you know, and with Paul there on set, they knew that. So they're like, OK, let's just start the song over again for some reason. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of intricate pieces that go into something like of that uh, magnitude. Um, if we have a sec here, I we actually have a question from the audience. Uh, CJ in the chat asks, "How does an editor end up working on a specific, um, you know, like a bigger film like John Wick? Is it like any other job that you apply to, or do you apply to a production company and then they put you on a certain movie?" Et cetera, et cetera. Um, so if you could go in a little into that, that'd be great. Yeah. So there, I think there's a couple of questions there. So I'm freelance. I, you know, when I'm working on a movie, I'm employed by the production company. And then when I'm done, I'm unemployed um, like I am right now. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, in terms of like what I apply to, there's a couple different ways that can happen. Uh, I have an agent now, so I'm represented at UTA and they have their network, so they have a better idea of what movies are starting to look for editors. They're constantly in contact with producers and post-supervisors and post-executives at the different studios. So, you know, we'll we'll have a chat and talk to my agents, you know, multiple times a week. And they're like, okay, these projects are coming. We think maybe you should meet these people over here. Sometimes that's also my own network. Obviously, like with John Wick 2, I didn't have to go apply to John Wick 3. You know, I just, the director just called and was like, hey, do you want to come back? You know, but before you have like an agent, it's a lot more of like, you know, who do you know who can introduce you to somebody who can introduce you to somebody else? And so, you know, that part gets a little tricky. Um, the other question I get sometimes is like, you know, how specifically do you get onto action movies? And I think that's just like luck. Just by sheer luck, you know, I ended up as being an assistant editor on a bunch of big action-y movies and comic book movies and things like that. And so when you start interviewing, people see those titles, even though it was an as, as an assistant editor, not as an editor, people see those titles on your resume, you know, and, and they're like, oh, you know, action. Great. Okay, great. Come work on our action movie. You know, as like an editor, you're like, I, well, I've never like cut an action movie before. I've just like, you know, exported them. And um, pro res. Yeah, I mean, it's like <laughs> it's slightly more complicated than that, but that's a and and uh, oh, I love being in the action, you know, world. I wouldn't mind doing something else uh, along the way, but like action's good. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I just sort of like ended up here by chance. Do you feel like with your all, all of your past experience with being an assistant and also with your experience of like with John Wick and then uh, even Revolt and Proud Mary, do you find yourself 
developing your own style or does it all depend on what you're given? It, it depends mostly on what you're given. I mean, your own sense of timing and what you think is funny are definitely things that, you know, that I personally bring to it. But it's not like a conscious choice. I view my job as like, how do I best understand what the director wants and give that to them? You know, so like on the Wick movies, it just happens to be that like Chad's sensibility and my sensibility overlap a lot. So like, you know, we both like sort of more classically cut sequences, you know, staying wide, staying long. Generally, you know, Chad in particular likes to start wide and move closer and move back out, you know. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think about that a lot when I'm cutting. I mostly, you know, look at the dailies for the scene and figure out what I feel like is the most interesting way to approach it. But then, you know, like on Bullet Train, going to work for, for Dave Leach and that movie in particular is like, there's more of like a comedy slant and... You know, obviously Dave comes from like Deadpool 2 and Hobbs and Shaw, and that's a totally different style than John Wick. So it's, you know, it sort of becomes my job to like learn what Dave's style is and what he likes and, you know, and do that for him. The challenge of making all that work and like, you know, figuring out, you know, what a new director wants and being able to like give it to them on the first try. You know, that's a fun challenge to be like, okay, how do I completely you know, throw out everything that I was doing for Chad and start, you know, taking in everything that I need to do for Dave. <laughs> That's interesting because when you got the call for John Wick 2, you're starting, it's the second movie in the series. So there already was a John Wick 1. Did you, did you feel any pressure of like scramble to try to fit, like to try to match that in any way? Or did you, was it solely just bringing your own taste and flavor to it? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I viewed it as a benefit that John Wick 1 had already gone through the like challenge of figuring out what is the tone of this, you know, world what is the editorial style? What works best? You know, I mean, there's tons of interviews where you can find Chad and Elizabeth and Dave, you know, talking about how they had originally cut a much more like serious version of John Wick 1, but their preview scores weren't great. And the weirder they made it, you know, when they went back into all the different actors takes and they like picked out like Michael Nykvist's like weirdest reads, you know, that made all the difference and all of a sudden audiences were into it a lot more. So interesting, you know, so it makes my job actually a little bit easier because then I'm like, okay, this might seem like a weird, you know, acting choice, but that's good for us. So I'm going to go with it. I couldn't point to like a specific like sensibility that I brought to like John Wick two and, and three. Um, you know, I was mostly like grateful for like coming into a style and cause that saves us a lot of time, you know, like in, in Wick two when we're cutting together, like a little bit of a Helen montage as John is, going through his house and looking at the card and, you know, um, with his dog, the style of that little section is us intentionally um, going back to Elizabeth's style from John Wick 1 and how she very, you know, had just like quick flashes of things um, in the beginning of John Wick 1. Right, right. Speaking of choices, we had, we were very interested to know when we shoot our action stuff, we pull a lot of inspiration from, from John Wick and from like the raid movies where everything is kind of shot a very particular way. And there's really not a lot of choices um, because we're not shooting necessarily coverage of stuff. So from an editing standpoint, you know, when you're putting together a John Wick action scene, like what are the choices like? Um, you know, when you're putting together a John Wick action scene, there aren't actually all that many choices. You know, they've worked everything out in advance. Even the things that they figure out on the day, they set up a rehearsal space and they put cardboard boxes in roughly the shape of like what the set will be like. But then when they actually get to the set, sometimes it's a little bit different and, you know, or they'll see an opportunity to do something cool, you know, on the set once they're actually there on the day, you know, and they'll change things around. But like Chad is, you know, he's the best at what he does for action. So, you know, the footage that I get is just, you know, it fits together perfectly most of the time. 
you know, they might shoot multiple cameras, you know, or get the same piece of action from multiple sides, but it's usually clear what is the clearest angle on the action. And that's generally what I will go for is, you know, where can I see the martial arts the best? Where can I see the sword fight the best? You know, and then I'll hold that as long as I can until something breaks, you know, there's a flub or they you just hit the natural end of the little chunk that they shot or I can't see something, you know, somebody's doing something that I need to see better than I can see in this angle and then I'll cut. Yeah. This is this is something Mike and I have been talking about for a while as we start to do more and more of our own action-based scenes and whatnot, um, really paying attention to what other people are doing, specifically the team from from John Wick. Mike always now really emphasizes that pre-production aspect of figuring everything out ahead of time and making it so there are less choices that you have to make, like, you know, shooting for the edit in, in, in a certain way like that. Um, so that's something that we've tried to emulate, too, and uh, I think it's super helpful. Yeah. I mean, like I remember on week three, I went into the rehearsal space one day and the stunt guys had like set up like a one of those scissor lifts. And then there was like a stack of mats, you know, like 10 feet below the like bottom of the scissor lift um, or at least where the, you know, where the platform had been raised up to, you know, and that was it. Everything else, you know, that was the only thing in the space. Um, and they were there was a guy like practicing rolling off and like landing on the mat. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I wonder what that's for. You know, and then you see like when the Ghost Recon guys uh, enter the Continental in Wick 3 and the shot during the shotgun section, there's a guy that falls over a railing, you know, and then like sort of like lands on a couple different things before hitting the ground. That's what the scissor lift was like representing was the <laughs> upper floor of this like railing. And then the guy flips over and goes down. There you go. That's a, that's so fun that you got to see that stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's why I like to be like on location, even if I'm not on set all the time is, you know, you pop in various places and you see cool things and you go back to your office and cut dailies. Yeah. <laughs> that's so cool. So we have a, a, another question. Actually, our buddy Josh, who works at DreamWorks Animation, who happens to be an animatic editor, having worked in live action and your previous work on animatics, would you ever consider working in a space like animation um, or have you al already worked in in that kind of space. I haven't worked in animation. I would, you know, I'd say, as I tell my agents, I'll consider anything. As an assistant editor, I worked on some shows that Marianne Brandon edited. She would go from like Star Trek into darkness to how to train your dragon, you know, back to, you know, Star Wars. And that's definitely something that I would do. I haven't specifically sought out, you know, an animation job, but yeah, I was, you know, yeah, definitely would yeah, it's interesting. It. Yeah, we had we had spoken to him because um, he, he's kind of the one that introduced me to that concept of animatic editing and what that actually entails. I mean, all all big films, you know, have previs that you know somebody has to cut together. So it's just a matter of whether or not it's the previs company because like the previs company has their own editor, so sometimes they do it. But you know, sometimes you want the editor of the movie. You know, they're, they're the editor that's going to cut the movie to do it. Yeah, something too that um, I remember speaking to Josh about was a part of at least. Uh, his job over at DreamWorks was doing a lot of sound design, you know, as well as doing the, the visual part of it um, to really, you know, sell what the animatic is doing. And I remembered reading about how, I don't know if it was part of your job or they asked you to do some aspect of sound design or sound mixing uh, when you were working on one of your projects. Yeah. So uh, that was Star Trek Into Darkness. Okay. That's what I was reading. Yeah. I had already been at Bad Robot for a couple of years and the post executive there had been saying that like, you know, JJ likes to be moving all the time. And the traditional workflow when you're doing a preview screening or a studio screening and you want to have a good, you know, sound mix for that is that you sort of have to lock the cut temporarily 
in order to give the sound crew time you know, to do their work. Because if you're constantly changing the edit, then the sound people are constantly chasing that edit in terms of conforming. They're not they're actually... going to quit. Yeah, they're going <laughs> right, to they're they're murder you and you won't have sound. Um, <laughs> so JJ was trying to figure out a way to not have to stop editing midstream in the middle of his director's cut or even, you know, or after that. Obviously, they would still go and do post-sound with, you know, Skywalker uh, at the end, but he wanted to not have to do that and to not have to stop editing in the middle. And so Avid released a version of Media Composer that allowed us to do surround sound in the timeline. Like no big film had really done it. It was a brand new feature. And so Ben Rosenblatt, the the post exec at Bad Robot, hired me and three other people to like basically figure it out. So there were three assistant editors, including myself. And then there was a sound mixer from Skywalker who came down to help us And we, you know, and we did it. And I think we, by the time that we finished our job, like if you watched Star Trek Into Darkness, it had, you know, it it sounded great. When you, when you hear the final mix um, that Skywalker did, obviously that's still going to be much better. But like in terms of temp mixes, it sounded incredible. And I had already been doing sound work for years, um, but I learned a lot from Will Files, who was our Skywalker, you know, consultant, um, you know, about how to temp sound in a, in a better and mix sound in a, you know, in a better, more believable way until you can bring in the pros. The conference room attack that's in 25 minutes or whatever into the movie, the, that conference room attack took us forever. We went through so many versions of that. Uh, we were limited to 16 mono tracks. So we had to like figure out how to, you know, place all of our clips into the timeline, you know, that we wanted and mix down things that were going, that were breaking that 16 track barrier. It took us forever to figure out what the phasers from the ships that were attacking the conference room from outside should sound like and how not to have it like completely just pierce your eardrums, you know, with this like minute long attack that had glass and lasers and things like that. So, so yeah, go ahead, right? I was going to say, are you, are you creating those sounds? Or are you like, are you mixing them with other stock elements or? For things like that, um, that were custom, Will would just go off into Pro Tools land and do that. Um, and come back with, you know, with a couple bounces of different elements. And then I would mix them, you know, in Media Composer. And and is that stuff, would that wind up being temp or that's what's going in? It, well, a little bit of mix and match. I mean, thankfully, because it's Will and because he was working, you know, he is a Skywalker guy. A lot of what we did, I think, made it in some form or another into the final tracks. And a lot of it got replaced, you know, by Ben Burt and his crew. So, you know, it was a, a little bit. Yeah. But at least you're establishing like what it should sound like. And then they're just making a better version of it. Yeah, we we got to go through all of the revisions with JJ. So by the time that post sound started, he could tell he could go to Ben Burt and be like, all right, we tried these five things and none of them worked. And then we hit the sixth thing and the sixth thing is awesome. And you can hear the temp. And, you know, what's a better version of that? That's really cool. Um, we have another question from the audience. This is fun. This is like the most amount of questions we've ever gotten. Um, Jackie Kaczynski asks, how often do you edit bad acting versus good acting? And I want to put a spin on that too. I want to say when you're, uh, you know, looking at uh, one take over the other, how are you organizing what's good versus bad? I mean, I know that's a very black and white way to put it, but I think you get where I'm going. Yeah. Uh, it depends on the movie. There's a lot of factors that go into whether or not the performances you get are good or bad, you know, and, and a lot of it has to do with like, you know, if the movie has a, you know, competent directors and producers and, you know, a good casting agent or casting director, you know, behind it, then you'll get 
you know, and the script is good, you'll get good performances. You know, if the script is bad, you know, it's not really fair to blame the That's actor. Just, yeah. For the oh, right. Right. It's garbage um, in, garbage out. Right. Yeah. Um, for me, as I'm going through, uh, most of the like ranking that I do is is very just I basically like I think of watching dailies as training my brain, <clears throat> excuse me, to remember all these takes. And so in that is like, OK, this one's better than that one. This one, the end of it was good. Oh, I like the way that they, you know, read this one line in take five. But the rest of that take I didn't like as much. You know, there's just there's a lot of just like mental note taking. Southside with you, I think, was a good example of, you know, we spent a lot of time looking at different takes for like how should the how should tika sumter's michelle obama character come off you know we had a little bit of a concern that that like at some point she like very specifically tells him take me home or you know or let me out of the car or whatever and he's like no i'm gonna keep driving to this ice cream parlor that i'm gonna take you at and we're like well, now it just seems like he's kidnapping her <laughs> so, like, <laughs> yeah the context yeah yeah so we had to like go and for both of them but we had to like the challenge in that movie was like how do you have conflict on a first date and then believe that these people went on to a second date and a marriage and a presidency and, you know, and and are the people that we see in public life. Can they have a difference of opinions whilst while not having the whole thing fall apart? And when one of them gets angry, you know, that was definitely a case where, like, I, I don't even I couldn't even tell you how many takes of my original choices, you know, are left in the final product. But, we, you know, we went through all of them again and again to to nail that down. How closely do you work with the director in the editing process? Like, does it vary from movie to movie? There is some... a, yeah, it varies a little bit depending on how comfortable the directors are in the editing process. You know, the way that I like to work and thankfully the way that Chad likes to work is, you know, we'll, he'll come in in the morning, we'll watch something or we'll talk about what sort of needs to be done, you know, and then he'll leave for like three hours, you know, and I'll do my thing and then he'll come back and I'll, or I'll go get him if I have something to show him. He's rarely in my office for like more than 45 minutes or an hour. And I prefer that because I think that I get better work done and I have more freedom to experiment when there isn't a pair of eyes looking over my shoulder. You know, and even sometimes like I have friends whose directors are like sitting on the couch on their laptop and they're like, I'm not looking at the screen, I promise. But, you know, they're looking at the screen. Of course. <laughs> um, and so you're you're sort of like, you know, you're sitting there at the keyboard being like, well, I want to try this thing, but I don't really want him to see it until it's done. You know, and so like how engrossed in his email is he right now? Um, yeah. And, you know, so I, I don't for me, that type of working relationship, I've done it, but I don't particularly it's not my favorite. <laughs> I'm thinking about I'm thinking about how I would feel like I'd, I'd be uncomfortable. I've yeah, had, I've had backseat editors before, and it's like a little bit of a stressful thing. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, maybe that's just the nature of people that are editors too. Is like I feel like I want it to be more of a a black box kind of thing where it's like it's a you're in the zone, you're doing your thing, and you spit something out, and then we all take you know because it's uh, you do you do there is so much experimenting like you were saying so. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Now, Evan, has has working on John Wick kind of made you bias towards action movies going forward? Because, I mean, to me and to I'm, I think to a lot of other people, too, John Wick kind of like it kind of changed the game on action movies and kind of like the way it's shot, the way it's performed. It's the highest quality tier that that is out there. So does it put a pressure on you for your preceding work of like, being the critically claimed editor of John Wick? Uh, a little bit. Um, you know, like 
Proud Mary is a movie that I, I am not proud of. Um, and, um, you know, and that was a movie where like, yeah, I got in and, you know, the like studio head is like, you know, make this like John Wick. I'm like, what? Of course. Your actors didn't prepare like John Wick. You didn't shoot the action like John Wick. You didn't do the like Keanu starts working out for a Wick movie like six months in advance. You can't have an actor come in three weeks out you know, do an hour of like cardio every day and then learn a bit of choreography and expect me to be able to like suddenly turn that into an action scene that's worthy of, you know, being compared to John Wick. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely it makes me a little bit more reticent to take movies where I feel like they aren't putting that level of thought and prep into it. Um, You know, the good thing is that like now we've set the bar. So I think that like if I'm working on a big studio movie these days, they're going to be like, okay, like there's a good chance that they're just even going to Chad's company and being like, okay, we want good action in this movie. You know, what do we need to do? And then Chad is telling them like, okay, I'm going to set you up with a stunt coordinator and I'm going to set you up with, you know, a trainer and you have to guarantee that we've got eight weeks of so-and-so's time, you know, every day for like four hours a day or whatever, you know, and we will make sure that you end up with a good action scene. But yeah, you know, it's, it's tricky. It's the, I, as you said before, shit in, shit out. So like, there is definitely, there was a part of like Proud Murray where there, where there's like, how come this doesn't feel like John Wick? And it's like, well, you might've hired me, but you didn't copy any of the other things, you know, that you needed to copy. It's so interesting you say that because even on our last episode, I, I went, you're going to say that <laughs> I went on a little rant about the TV show, the equalizer, which is a new show with Queen Latifah and it's nothing against Queen Latifah, but it became very apparent in the first action sequence where it felt like the taken the taken three fence jumping scene where it takes 17 takes to jump a fence. But I mean, how does that over editing of action sequences, you know, how does that happen? I mean, I, I know it's not necessarily the editor's fault, you know, but I mean, like, yeah, the t- I don't I mean, the taken thing, I have no idea how that happens. <laughs> you know, I assume that it's a stunt guy hopping over that fence and not Liam Neeson. Um, so that's why you only see him really from his back. Um, cutting good action is not hard if the material is good. So most bad action that seems over edited is because you're trying to fix something and you're just doing the best that you can. Um, in those situations, it can be blatant, you know? Yeah. And there is a little bit of a tendency if you're like, I think on the like producing side of things to be like, okay, you know, once everybody acknowledges the action sucks, there's this idea that like, if you make it choppy and you just make it feel frenetic, that'll make up for something. And, you know, it'll just pass by quickly and people will be like, oh, something fast happened. Then like, I mean, that those are the tricks that you, you know, that people use. Sometimes you're forced into that corner, you know? Yeah. So like, your experience on Proud Mary, would you say that most of the time that stuff comes down from the top? Like it's not, it doesn't come from the director's inexperience of action. It comes from the studio not understanding the process. Mm, it's somewhere in the middle. Directors still have a lot of latitude in how they shoot action. Dealing with directors is a lot of like watching them figure out how they want to spend their political capital, you know? And like sometimes that political capital is like, well, if I hire a new composer, even though the last composer was totally fine, I can save X amount of money that I can redirect towards VFX shots that I want. Decisions like that. So sometimes it's like talking with a student and be like, I need, you know, six weeks of prep. And they're like, we don't have that in the budget. We've got two weeks of prep. And they're like, okay, well, how about three and a half weeks of prep? You know, there's like a lot of like things like that where it's just you're like horse trading and, you know, where the blame lies, you know, is sort of in this like nebulous gray area. Well, without saying names of movies or people. 
Was there ever a time where your where your edit actually salvaged the movie on a on a broken project that wasn't going to work? Yes. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Just yes. <laughs> <laughs> you said no names and no people, so yeah. yes. <laughs> It's a good point, Mike. Did, I, I did, did I did say, say that. that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, those situations are some they're they're sad, you know, sometimes if you're like if I, I have both been replaced and been the guy coming in to replace other people, and you know, it's never a fun experience. I'm curious what um this kind of applies to everyone. Um I recently moved to an ultra wide monitor kind of specifically for for working on sequences and i think it's helped me uh, a decent amount just being able to lay out more right in front of me it was funny we used to joke in college i kind of had like a triple monitor setup with one two and three up top mm. we used to call it nasa um <laughs> and, you know i've always kind of just like i just i like a lot of desktop room so evan is that something that you have uh, worked on or considered uh, making your preference yeah, I'd like to try one of the, the like ultra wides. You know, at home I just have a couple twenty four inch monitors. On Birds of Prey, I had these like huge dual thirty inch monitors, which I didn't like at first, and then I got used to them. You know, because like the like actual like fonts in them are tiny, so they take a little bit of like customization. But then having all that space for a timeline and a viewer and all my open bins and everything, you know, that was really nice. Um, I don't have yeah, that's what I've been able to have here. is like bins up top and like it's great. Yeah. yeah, I know, Mike, you just moved to an ultra-wide monitor, too. Yeah, I love it. Just being able to see the timeline, have it be so long. I can see everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Right? It's so, it's so attractive. Yeah. Just, you know, you're not, you're not doing as much work, and you're able to see more contextual information of, like, where stuff is. Yeah, I'm, I ordered one of these, like, prefabricated office, backyard office sheds that's mm -hmm. going to come in a couple of weeks. We moved into this house, you know, in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, right now my avid, my avid's in my, you know, in the same room that my kids watch TV in and my wife, you know, does her work in. So I need to get that out of there. And so I'm thinking like, <laughs> <laughs> once that office is set up, like I might go to the ultra wide. I might sort of reassess what all my kit currently is, yeah. you know, and sure. try an ultra wide. That was my other question was uh, about um, the pandemic and, and were you already working in your own space that you just kind of, where you, you went right into it or you had to sort of figure things out to come up with a space at home i picked up a job actually the week that la went into lockdown um and i'd had an office we were living in, a, in an apartment and i'd had like my own room in that apartment that i've been using as my office since we right, you know, right. moved in there um so that was already all set up and it had fiber which was great you know and then like two months later you know we uh we moved into this house and I lost my access to fiber and I just had some, you know, crappy AT&T. So that was like actually the biggest disappointment was like going one week from having, you know, a gig up and down and being able to like do turnovers and download dailies and everything, you know, and then, you know, coming here and all of a sudden, you know, I'm back in like where I was like 10 years ago um, in terms of Internet speed. Yeah, I think a majority of like at least our group of friends, like at least me and Chris, all three of us, we we go to an office typically and, and, you know, work on a desk setup, but we all have our own desk setups at home because it's also a hobby to just make stuff and have like a designer space to go. So when the pandemic happened, like we all kind of lucked out. We're like, oh, we already have like a perfect workspace to just continue working. And I'm, I'm still remote. I'm almost, I'm yeah, a year this week was uh, working remote. I'm still yeah. remote. So. Yeah, same here. The biggest change I'd say on my side is that most of the time I'm not allowed to take media home. 
I have to go into an office because that's the only place I'm allowed to access the movie. And, you know, for years, like editors, like I know plenty of, uh, of other feature editors that have their own, you know, home office set up. And, you know, that rivals or is better than what you get, you know, when a studio rents you one in an office somewhere. And, you know, for years, we've been like, oh, we'd, I'd love to like, you know, be able to just like work from home because then that makes your schedule easier and you can choose when you want to deal with L.A. traffic. And up until the pandemic, it was like, no, 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 it's not secure. Your home is not, you know, we've put in all this money to be MPA certified and et cetera, et cetera. You know, and now it's like the pandemic hit and within like two weeks, it was like, here's a hard drive of all the, mov- you know, the media for the movie, you know, go ahead, take it home, just make sure it's encrypted and it should be fine, you know, and like all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, people figured it out. I and mean, obviously, like the marvels of the world are still are doing more like remote systems where you don't have to have your own, your whole setup at home. You're really just sort of remoting into a system that's on yeah, Disney Yeah, that's line. what uh, Josh is doing at DreamWorks. He's, he works off his laptop, but he remotes in through like a secure vpn basically yeah exactly um bullet train we had local meet we went the local media route because one of the downsides of the remote version is you can't get a client monitor most of the time um and i really rely on the client monitor for you know having the best picture quality and for for picture and audio sync but um kind of a system are you running like a really beefy like windows box or like you know the the laptop i'm talking to you now on actually Oh, really? You did it off a laptop? Yeah, I just dock it. I have a 16-inch MacBook Pro. And, you know, I, I dock it into a CalDigit Thunderbolt dock with, you know, to get my monitors and Ethernet right. and everything. And my needs are not technically not very intense. I, I cut with a lot of footage, but it's like highly compressed. I'm barely even cutting 4K. Like most of the time I'm still in 1080p. So, um, you know, the laptop handles it just fine. I like the laptop because, you know, I put everything on it. And then when I go to work, I just, you know, undock it, throw it in my backpack and I've got everything with me. So like, I'm always prepared. If I need to like open Avid somewhere, I can always just, you know, do it on my laptop. Is there any kind of uh, either franchise or, or kind of movie that you wish you, you, you hope you get the opportunity to work on or a movie that you wish you got to, to edit? I mean, you know, I, I, I wish that I could have helped Paul out on Baby Driver. That was, you know, that was a bummer. <laughs> we all do. We yeah. all do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I went to college with John Chu. I, you know, I'd love to work with John someday. John has an editor now and Myron Kirstein, who's great. You know, because it's mostly like I, I like being in this, this industry when you get to work with your friends. Yeah, you know? sure. And so like counting John as like a as a friend and as an amazing director, you know, it would be a great experience. Uh, there's editors whose careers, you know, I'm, I have a little, you know, envy of who's like, oh, I like that path seems so cool. You know, like Joe Walker is a guy who I think gets to cut like a variety of really cool stuff. Uh, I'm in pretty frequent contact with Eddie Hamilton, who's doing the Mission Impossible movies right now, you know, and one of my favorite movies, uh, the first Kingsman, you know, Eddie did Mm. that too. Um, I love that movie. So, um, yeah when I get asked for advice on like, how do you get into feature editing? You know, how do you get an editing period or whatever from college students? You know, I often just, you know, you have to sort of give the, the response that like everybody takes their own path. I'm on the path that I'm on and I'm going to, you know, if I want to see changes to what the types of projects that I'm working on, then, you know, right. I got to do the work to make that happen. All of us, we work kind of as professional editors and, and video producers, but on the smaller scale doing a combination of corporate work, but also like I do media and entertainment through a PR agency. And and then obviously the variety of things we do on our own. And something that we've always, I've always thought is like, oh, if I ever do want to go into the more traditional industry, like what would be my path given that I have experience, like doing it just different experience. 
you know, would I have to start at the bottom or can I just jump into like, you know, maybe like an assistant editor, editor role or so I'm wondering like how the industry is structured to kind of mold to newer uh, creators or artists or editors that have experienced like that, but want to kind of transition. A lot of that comes down to like a trust thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you'll find it even with like, you know, people who've been working in reality who obviously know how to do turnovers and know how to cut and know how to like handle high volumes of footage when they try to make it over into scripted. You've got to like get people to trust, you know, that you can do all the things that you know you can do. Yeah. Um, you generally have to like take a step back and, and, you know, take an assistant job, you know, so that you can like point to some credits on your resume and be like, see, look, I, you know, these things that that are obviously shared skills across no matter what you're cutting and what, no matter what you're working on, you know, they, I, I can do them, you know, in a feature just as well as I can do them at somewhere else. But there's definitely some like resume bias, you know, when you're, when you're interviewing. Is this your dream job, Evan? I think so. I like it a lot. So I think so. Simple question, simple answer. <laughs> yeah. I'm just always curious of like, if you feel like you've made it, at what point do you feel like you're satisfied with how far you've come? I, I, I don't feel like you ever feel like you've made it. I'll say that from, a, I'll revise that, I guess. I, obviously, like at this point, I feel like I have made it into the level of like studio feature editors where I can submit my name for something and not be immediately thrown out, you know, as like too inexperienced or we don't know who that guy is. You know, I have a body of work I can point to. But like, I think that one of the things that makes good creatives that good at what they do is that like feeling of like, there's always something more I can be striving for. Um, And if you get to the point where you're not striving for anything to try something new or to learn something new, then probably the work that you're doing is suffering as a result. You don't want to be stagnant. You don't, you don't want to be jaded. You don't want to be like, ah, oh, this is what I want to do. I'm here. I can do this in my sleep, you know, because like then people don't really like working with you. This is an industry that's based on people having dreams. And if you at some point be like, I achieved my dream, I'm done. You know, like people like it's like a weird yeah, thing to boring. say. It's a weird feeling. Yeah. People will be like, oh, you don't want it. There's like literally nothing else you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm good. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think once you once you hit a point in your in your career and obviously your personal life with your family, everything, your priorities shift. And, you know, like us all being, you know, 20 something and Mike's 30. Hey. But um, <laughs> don't, don't, don't tell anyone. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, we our priorities are like focusing on our, our work and our creative passions and like what the, what's next. But, you know, when you're somewhere further in your career, you're like, all right, I'm happy doing this thing. I'm not like pushing harder and harder to. Yeah, I don't know if you feel that way, but. You know, I think there's a little, there is a little bit of like, you know, I was like looking at people during the pandemic, you know, right, working on their novels and writing their screenplays and, you know, and doing, and I like had ideas for things that I wanted to do and no time to do any of it, you know, because yeah, I've got two kids that require my attention already more than I have time to, you know, to to give them if I have a job and and working. Um, So yeah, your priorities do shift, but you know, then it just becomes a balance of like, how do I be home for dinner and bedtime, you know, while also making sure that I'm, you know, creatively fulfilling my own, you know, dreams and how do I make the time? Yeah, I was going to ask, after all these years, is editing still your passion? Or do you have other passions outside of editing or that are fueled, like encompassed into the same bubble? Yeah, I, I you know, I've consider editing, you know, it's, it's like a, like any sort of hobby. Editing is the hobby I get paid to do. Um, but like, I, as I, I like programming, I find that programming exercises a lot of the same muscles as editing, 
you know, you're like, you've got a problem, you can solve it a million different ways, but some ways are more efficient than others, you know? So like, if I don't have footage to cut, you, you can find me programming, you know, uh, if I, you know, I play piano, I, you know, we like, we, we like to go skiing, you know, it's like, you know, there's, there's definitely things that, you know, I think it's useful to get out from, you know, my computer and oh yeah, you know, experience the world and travel and things like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, not these, these days we're not traveling, but you know, I think that like one of the things I've been lucky about is that a lot of the projects that I had early in my career involved some really cool travel and so I got yeah, to that's combine, great. you know, that interest, you know, with my job and get paid for it. So. All right, guys. Well, we're, we're kind of winding down here. Um, I think, um, yeah, I've got, I've, I've had a lot of water, so I'm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have maybe one thing that I want to, uh, leave off on. I just had this conversation with somebody of, they said to me, doesn't like, doesn't watching movies now, like, does that take away from it for you? Like knowing all the backend stuff but for me, it always improves it. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I, most of the time I'm engaged in movies much more than I'm thinking about, you know, my background knowledge of them. For me, it's a problem. Like, you know, people ask me, like, do you think about the editing? And I'm like, if I'm thinking about the editing, there's a problem with the movie. Then it's poorly edited. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Um, yeah, if it's a well-made movie, you're going to be engrossed and not like your mind shouldn't be wandering to any professional thing. You know, it's like, that's what, for me, that's what second viewings are for. If I'm curious about like how they did something or if I want to like examine the story structure better or like revisit, like then all that, all that'll be like a second viewing, you know, mental state. But a first viewing mental state is just like, let me just soak it in, you know? I think we did it guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yes. (laughs) Amazing. Well, I got to say thank you again, Evan, man. It was such a pleasure uh, to get to meet you and find out a little bit about what you do and uh, talk to all us novice filmmakers out here in New Jersey, not knowing where we're going next. (laughs) Uh, But uh, yeah, man, really appreciate it. Um, So thank you everyone for for, uh, joining us on the live stream and um, we'll catch you next time on Until You Make It and uh, cheers. Go movies. For more content, check out Helium Turtle Studios on YouTube, where we post our short films, video tutorials, and behind the scenes.